So hello, my name is Tom. Um, I grew up as a, um, in a Christian home in the 90s. Anyone else? Solidarity. It's a tough time in a lot of ways. It means a lot of things. In my home, it meant this. Petra was playing almost at all times, sometimes Sa Sandy Patty. We did not go trick-or-treating. We went to harvest parties at churches. My parents said things like, darn, shoot, fooey, only insinuating at the real swear words, sugar, yes, things like this. Uh, flannel graphs were very prevalent, and McGee and me VHS tapes were the most exciting things around. Amen? The big lie, anyone remember that one? Skate expectations, I mean, this is... Um, but we weren't allowed to watch a lot of the TV shows and, and movies that our neighbors were allowed to watch. And so picture me walking to school with my neighbor, Dory. We're both nine, which is about the age where you're kind of equal size to your backpack. And so we're both walking. And imagine he and I talking to each other. It would, it would go something like this. Hey, hey, Tom, can you watch Power Rangers? No. Can you watch Pinky and the Brain? No. Can you watch Animaniacs? No. Can you watch Ren and Stimpy? No. Uh, Gargoyles? No. Beavis and Butthead? Huh? And then The Simpsons, I stopped walking. Dude, I don't think you should be watching The Simpsons. What is going on in your household? My parents did, however, let us watch Petra Praise worship videos. They were insane. McGee and me, as I previously mentioned, most things on PBS, or for you, Canadians, TVO, O Canada. Um, Lawrence Welk. It's so embarrassing. Lawrence Welk, national football games, Civil War documentaries, and strangely, any of the Beatles feature-length films. That's very strange, of which there are four. 1965's A Hard Day's Night, 1967's... Um, the Magical Mystery Tour, Acid Trip much, uh, 1968's, uh, what was that one called? Yellow Submarine, and my personal favorite, 1965's Help. In this movie, uh, the Beatles travel around the world as a strange cult is after Ringo Starr, because Ringo Starr has procured this ring from one of his fans that they use in their human sacrifices. Thanks, parents. I can't watch Animaniacs, but I can watch this. Can you get the irony here? So one of the songs that soundtracks that movie is one of my personal favorite Beatles songs. It's the song called Help, which is written by John Lennon. Any Beatles fans in the room? A few of us. Uh, let me read you the lyrics. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now these days are gone, and I'm not so self-assured. But now I find I've changed my mind. I've opened up the doors. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being round. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? And now my life has changed in oh so many ways. My independence seems to vanish in the haze. But every now and then I feel so insecure. I know that I need you just like, never, like I've never done before. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down, and I do appreciate you being around. 
Help me get my feet back on the ground, won't you please? Please help me. Help me. Help me. Ooh, ooh, ooh. It's a great song. This song was written at the height of Beatlemania, which for the record was insane. You guys have seen the footage. Throngs of people around all the time just wanting to get some sliver of attention or piece of time with these four 20-something dudes from the UK. And you can see the look of exhaustion and despair in the music video for this song. And when John Lennon was interviewed about writing this song, he said this, I was fat, I was depressed, and I was crying out for help. Lennon is heralded as, heralded as one of the greatest songwriters of all time, specifically because he is very vulnerable later years on, especially in the later years of his songwriting. And a lot of people would say this song is the first crack in kind of us, us getting an insight into John's vulnerability in his emotional life, this specific song. And I would suggest that this is such a beautiful song because it reads more like a prayer. It's a universal cry, a prayer anyone can pray help. It's acknowledging something so real about our human condition. We need help. We need help. Help from one another, but moreover, help from God. Today's message is titled, Help Unlimited, and my goal is simple, to help us see the God who is able to help us in our time of need, and to do that, I have to begin in the not-so-fun work of helping us see our ever-present help for need. But to do that, I would like you guys to stand up. We're going to read this story from Matthew chapter 9. And um, we're going to trust that God's going to reveal his heart to us this morning. So if you feel comfortable, we're just going to read this text together. Then I'll pray for us, and then we'll go from there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. There's no slides? That's okay. I'll just read it. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe, for she said to herself, If I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout the whole area. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help. We need your help today. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to you. Lord, we've sung this morning so beautifully about um, your mercy exceeding our need. That your mercy is greater than than, than the judgment we deserved. We sung about your altar being open, you inviting us to come. All who are weary and heavy laden, come and you will give them rest. And we sung about us being able to trust you with our whole heart. And so, Lord, as we think about this story together, as we think about how does this play into our lives here today in 2023 in Alliston, Lord, would you show us our need for help, but moreover, would you show us your willingness to help us? We love you. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
And everybody said, Amen. Are you guys going to have a seat? Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Help. These are such vulnerable lyrics. And for some of you, you're squirming in your seat as we speak. We have such a hard time asking for help in our culture. Because our culture praises things like self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-protection. All of these things are praised and held in high regard. And yes, God is all about maturing us and making us people who are healthy human beings. But we have to realize that there's a process of that happening. The chorus of our culture of our time sounds like this. I'm good. I've got this. Killing it. I am vibing. I just embarrassed all my kids there. And maybe some of you are secondhand embarrassed, but that's okay. Um, But one of the ways we think about our faith here or our discipleship to Jesus is this slow and all-encompassing shift from a life centered in, anchored in, or oriented around the self to life anchored in God. There's this ongoing invitation we see all throughout the scriptures of surrendering our lives to God rather than trying to earn everything we have ourselves. We learn to trust his good work on our behalf, his rescue, his redemption, his grace, his thoughts. You get the point. In confession, like I, I struggle to ask for help. So much so that yesterday I sent a text. We have a leadership couples uh, group chat. I had a hard time asking them to pray for me. Just to say, hey guys, I need help. I'm having a hard time pulling this message together. Can you pray for me? I, I had like three drafts of asking for help. So I just want to say, I'm not saying, hey, all you guys suck at asking for help. I'm saying, hey, I think we need, need to do better at asking for help. So I'm afraid to ask for help. I wonder if you're like me and maybe we're all just afraid to ask for help. And I just wonder if these are some of the few reasons as to why. I had a conversation yesterday with my two older daughters and my wife, and this is what we came up with. Why don't we ask for help? The first thing could be pride. Pride says, I need to do this all myself. And when we ask for help, we're saying essentially, hey, I can't do this. I need you to help me. It can be uncomfortable to ask for help because if I ask you for help, then you're going to ask me for help. And I like my Saturdays. So I ain't trying to do that. Some of us don't want to ask for help because we don't want to be a burden. We've been told when we were younger, like, you're such a, oh, you're so high maintenance. Like, why do I have to help you all the time? And so we don't want to be a burden to other people. We're maybe afraid that when we ask for help, others will come into the situation and tell us what we're doing is actually wrong. And this is one for me, I don't know if maybe for some of you in this room, this idea that I should be able to do this. And that voice of shame, like a real man would be able to do this. I remember this one time, Jess and I were driving somewhere to meet someone in Mississauga and our, our tire blew. And um, it was on this Volvo, it was old, and I could get all the lug nuts off to change the tire but one. And I'm telling you dudes, I was having like an existential crisis on the side of the whatever, 401. Like I was like, am I even a man? I can't get this lug nut off. And then the guy came and he couldn't get it either, so whatever, that's, that's right. But, but the point is this, like that voice of I should be able to do this, I should be able to get my life together, I shouldn't need to ask for help, is very real. The other things maybe could be that we don't want to be seen as weak. Um, We are told consistently that we need to have it all together. The shiny, happy people on Instagram, they have it all together. They never have to ask for help. The truth is they all have nannies. Um, uh, uh, Why don't we ask for help? Because we're disappointed by asking for help in the past. Like we've asked for help in the past and maybe it hasn't really been helpful. People have come in and just shamed us and condemned us and not actually been helpful at all. 
And I would say the, the kind of the icing on top is that this requires us surrendering control to something else, someone else. We like to be in control. So we don't ask for help for a whole bunch of reasons. These could be a few of the reasons as to why. A few weeks ago, Jillian taught us brilliantly about Jesus forgiving sins. Just quick shout out to Jillian and Kevin and the other people who have been teaching. Thank you guys so much. You're doing a brilliant job. Um, and, and, and she reminded us about sin. And she said this, sin is any attempt to meet our own needs by our own resources. Let me read that again. Sin is any attempt to meet our own needs by our own resources. Sounds like this. I've got this. I'm good. I can get to the good life that is really good on my own. Thank you very much. Very different from the verse, uh, the chorus of help by John Lennon. Jesus comes to show us the truth about the way that things really are. And that by God's grace, a lot of us have come to a place at some point in our lives where we realize this, in fact, isn't true, that we need some help. We don't have it on our own. We cannot get to the good life on our own. We need someone to bring us there. This opens up a door for mercy and grace to meet us. And for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, this is inherent to the new life we have in God. It begins with the recognition that, in fact, John Lennon was right. We need help. We need help. So we have to remember that no matter how long we've been following Jesus, this desire for help or this need for help will never go away. So this story that we just read is such a helpful picture of what God's response is to the human need for help. So in, the, in terms of the narrative, Jesus is at a meal with Matthew and his friends. So in the middle of this meal, uh, this guy bursts in and he's like, hey, Jesus, he, he kneels down. He says, my daughter is dead. And so this, this man is a well-respected middle-class religious leader, and he bursts in and essentially interrupts a meal. He interrupts Jesus. And so this is the first thing I want to draw your attention to in this story. God is interruptible. God is interruptible, which means that God has time for you. Okay? God has time for you. He, Jairus, interrupts Jesus. He kneels down before him in a posture of humility, of need, of desperation even, and he begins to explain at what at first glance is an incredibly hopeless situation. Hey, Jesus, my 12-year-old daughter is dead. Is there a state that you can think of in which more help is needed than the state of death? This is a state of complete helplessness. There's nothing you can do. And as parents, you could imagine that sense of being utterly and completely powerless to help your own flesh and blood, the sense of desperation. Jesus, you're willing to interrupt. You're willing to contradict kind of what is the status quo or what is expected of you socially to get to the source of help that you need. I'll say this, rock bottom is a place we'd all rather avoid. And I have a friend who works with people in addiction and she would pray this prayer. She would, she would pray, God, I pray that you would raise rock bottom for this person. So that they could get to it quicker, quicker than they are at this moment. And, and I'd ask her about this, and we'd have these conversations, and she would say this, that hitting rock bottom is actually a gift. There's a gift to hitting rock bottom. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, their first step, first of their 12 steps is this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Honesty. Admitting powerlessness, confessing things about our lives that are at this point unmanageable. In other words, help. I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. So Jairus, 
he looks to a help outside of himself to be something on his daughter's behalf. He comes to Jesus with faith, which is trust that the power of God could extend beyond even the grave. Hey, my 12-year-old daughter is dead, but, he says, come lay your hand on her and she will live. Faith says, my daughter is dead, but. Remember, faith is a disposition of trust in an object which allows that object to work on our behalf. And essentially what he's saying is this, God, I am completely powerless to do anything to help my daughter. But if you come, if you come and you help, you can bring my daughter back to life. So how does Jesus respond to this interruption? He cuts the dinner party short. He responds to Jairus' faith and brings his friends along. And it says something really interesting. It says that Jesus followed him. So much we're reading about and so much of our lives are oriented around following Jesus. But in this story, Jesus follows him. It's really compelling because Jesus, I think the point Matthew's making, Jesus follows faith. Jairus' dead but statement exposes Jesus' willingness and expediency to trust properly placed. This does something. The second um, thing I'd like you to notice is that Matthew, in this kind of string of stories and miracles, is furthering the examples of Jesus' authority for those reading. It's like storms, check. Satan, check. Sickness, check. Sin, check. Death, let's see. So they head to Jairus' house. Let me read again what comes next. You guys okay? Parched today. I don't know what's going on. So the story goes on. They leave the party. Jairus interrupts. They leave the party. Jesus follows them. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached him from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. And this poor woman has been suffering from a chronic menstrual disorder, which would have rendered her and any she may have come into contact with as unclean for the last 12 years. 12 years is a long time. I mean, by hour 12 of a cold, I'm done. I think I'm dying. I write my will in my head. But this is a serious situation. We learn in other accounts of this story, both in in, uh, Mark and Luke, that this woman had endured much under many doctors, She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, it says, she became worse. So she, in other words, has been through the ringer. She has spent everything she has and things were getting worse. She needs help, real help. I want us to notice that um, her faith or the quality thereof isn't really like top-notch grade A faith. We wouldn't study this as the formula for how to approach Jesus per se. She essentially like sneaks up on Jesus. Like she kind of comes from behind and like just like touches his robe. And I think this is just a sign of desperation. Like I need, I need something. I need something from God. And I don't know how to do it properly, but I'm going to get in there and just sneak up on him and touch his robe. But we have to remember that if she touched Jesus, in terms of what her brain was thinking and what the culture was saying, if she touched Jesus, she would have made him unclean. So she's trying to like just sneak attack, get the healing, and then get out of there without him noticing. And what we read in the other accounts is that Jesus stops, and it's a whole crowd of people all around him. He's like, hey, who touched me? And the disciples are like, seriously, Jesus? We all touched you, bro. Like, what the heck? Why are you going to make a stop? 
And the point they're trying to make, I think Matthew's trying to make, is that Jesus is like, I want to heal you, but I want to make a connection with you. I want to actually talk to you. I want to see you. And I want to, re- I want to like restore dignity to you beyond just you kind of touching my robe. But what we learned about a few weeks ago is that Jesus is not contaminated by our sin. It's actually the other way around. Jesus' holiness is contagious to us. And the point is this. She didn't have the right formula, and that's okay. She needed help. And this seems to underline the reality that with Jesus, it's the object of our faith that matters, not the quality of our faith. She came to the right person. She may have done it wrong, but she came to the right space, the right place, and to the right person. And that is where that transaction of healing actually took place. She needed help, or like as simple as possible, she needed help, and he could help her. That's what we want to take from this story. So Jesus turns to this lady who kind of snuck up on him and grabbed his, his robe, and he says, oh, have courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. Jesus, again, he makes things personal. It's not just about touching Jesus. It's about Jesus speaking a word to her. It appears that Jesus is always after something much deeper than we often realize. It's worth noting uh, as well that Jesus' interactions with women are particularly unique in this time. He gives them a profound sense of dignity in, their, in the recorded interactions that we read in the Gospels. So he, in this interaction, as he's calling her daughter and has healed her, he's restoring her back into the family of God and into the society at large. She's, oh, now she's clean again. She can come and be amongst the people. He says, have courage, daughter. It's like he's saying this, hey, your life of expectancy is good. Keep living with that sense of expectancy like you have been. That if I can just type of attitude, just keep going that way. And that seems to take courage because so much of what we experience and think about and the world tells us is the opposite. So it takes courage to have faith in the midst of unbelief. I want you to notice this. God is able to help those who are spent, and God is willing to help the desperate. No matter how long you've been suffering with the same thing. This woman was suffering for this, with this for 12 years. You might be in this room this morning, and you're like, man, I've been dealing with this thing for so long, and maybe God's just like, you're too far gone. I don't want to help you, dude. You, you should have figured this out, you know, 11 years ago. And this story says, no, no matter how long you've been suffering with something, no matter how much you've spent to try to deal with these things in your life, God is willing and able to help you. So what are the things in our lives that we are exhausting our resources to fix? Is it your marriage? Is it your ongoing battle with an addiction? Is it your image? Is it your health? What are the things that we're draining ourselves to try to fix in our own strength because we don't know how to just ask for help? And what are the areas in your life of ongoing pain or even uncleanness that God is drawing to your, to your attention because he's wanting to remind you that, man, I'm able to help and I'm able to heal. And it's not about doing it the right way. It's about coming to the right source. Have courage. Don't be afraid. Only believe. The story goes on. So Jesus is interrupted again. He's snuck up on by this lady, and then he's going to get back on track to get to Jairus' house. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said. Because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout that whole area. This is a scene. 
He comes into what is the tradition for those in, in Israel, the hiring. This is one of my favorite sentences I'm ever going to be able to say to you guys. The hiring of the obligatory flautists. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, you guys can use that for whatever you want. Like at a party, just like, you ever heard about obligatory flautists and the, someone who plays the flute? Do you know what obligatory means? Okay, so obligatory flautists. Um, I completely lost my train of thought. He comes into a scene. There's these obligatory flautists, and they pay these women to wail and to make this whole scene of grief. So there's a, a, a female wailer, which would lead the neighborhood in crying. This is what it actually said in one of my commentaries. Singing pathetic sounds and clapping sadly. <laughs> Don't know how you do that, but that's unreal. So Jesus asked them to leave because he says this, hey man, obligatory flautists, get out of here. We, you're, no longer, you're no longer obliged to play the flute in here. No more sad clapping. No more singing pathetically because the girl isn't dead. She's only sleeping. Okay? To which they switch the vibe real quick. From crying, they then laugh at Jesus. It's a, pretty, it's a weird scene which may be Matthew's desire to expose their superficiality. Who could say? And this could also be to illustrate the common response to the claim of Jesus' own resurrection by those yet to come to faith in Christ. So Jesus essentially is saying this, hey, unbelief, it's time to go. Get out the door. And what he does is he brings faith into the room. He brings Peter, James, John. He brings Jairus and Jairus' wife. And he himself walk into the room to go visit this 12-year-old girl who's at this point, dead. And so Mark's gospel records Jesus speaking these words, which I think is, it's so beautiful. He says this, and this is one of the words, like it's, it's kept in the original language in your Bibles. He says, Talitha kumi, which essentially means this. Hey, honey, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. And she did. So back to Matthew's question, Jesus's authority over death, check. What we're learning here is that Jesus could raise this girl from the grave easier than I can raise my children from their beds in the morning. Jesus has authority over everything we could ever need help with, even the problem of death itself. This is what Matthew's trying to bring our attention to. And what we know as, as, as people on this side of the cross, on this side of history, is that we know that Jesus himself will soon go to his own death. That he'll go to the cross once and for all to conquer death for all of us. He will, he, his help will go down into the deepest, darkest, most powerful weapon the enemy has over us, death itself. And he will go into that space because what is unassumed is unhealed. So he'll go to the deepest, darkest depths of death itself and he will rise again. He will die and he will rise again in our place. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth puts it this way, For I passed on to you as most important... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Essentially this, Jesus' love is stronger than the grave. He is the resurrecting king. But to put it bluntly, as we think about our own lives, there's no resurrection without a crucifixion. There's no resurrection without a crucifixion. Let me read you guys. Uh, this is a, a lengthy quote. This is from an article I was reading this week uh, by Dave Zoll. It's called Pray for a Nervous Breakdown. Uh, 
In Heather Kopp's Sober Mercies, a memoir of what happens when a successful writer, editor of Christian books, and mother of two finds herself in rehab in midlife, the following about two-thirds of the way through the book after Heather has relapsed. So this is a quote from that book. One of the first books I picked up during this phase of my recovery was Seeds of Grace, written by Sister Molly Monahan, a practicing Catholic nun. She wrote that she honestly believed she'd learn more of God and come closer to Him through recovery than she had during all her years of religious training. Yet she expressed bafflement at how and why this could be the case. I skipped forward in the book, searching for the part where she finds the answer. But the closest she came was her conclusion that, in my alcoholism, I experienced myself as being utterly lost and unable to help myself in a way that I never had before. Something about her observation resonated. I thought back on all, on all my years of being a Christian, including the early years after I was newly saved. Sure, I had always known in my head that I was a sinner saved by grace, but utterly lost, unable to save myself. Like the nun, I couldn't remember experiencing that kind of spiritual desperation until I admitted that I was hopeless. I was a helpless alcoholic. Only then did the truth of my absolute need for saving and my complete inability to save myself finally become real to me. Up until that day when I fell on my knees and sobbed beside my bed, listen to this, God's grace had been a nice option, a convenient option, but not my only option. It was a painful epiphany with enormous implications. Among other things, it meant that if I was ever going to experience the kind of ongoing spiritual transformation I so desperately wanted, I would have to learn the difference between ascribing to a set of Christian beliefs that had no power to change me and clinging daily to an experience of God's love and grace that could. Sheesh. To borrow a phrase, I would suggest to you that there is a severe mercy in hitting rock bottom, in recognizing our real need for help, in admitting our helplessness, in only having one option forward, God's grace, his unmerited favor, his never changing gift of mercy and help in our time of need. It will not always look pretty, but there is something happening in these moments. Think about Jesus' own death and resurrection. Things look hopeless, but this is where God does some of his best work. God intervenes and raises his son from the grave. Jesus defeats death and all his friends once and for all on our behalf, and he's raised as the first fruits of the new creation. Something new is happening here. The future is breaking in to the present. And the mystery of the gospel is that through Jesus' incarnation, God taking on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he has included us in that process of death and resurrection. He who knew no sin became sin. He took into himself all of our alienation, all of our brokenness, all the rebellion, all the wreckage of, I've got this on my own, into himself as he went up on that cross. And he went into the grave for three days, getting all the way underneath all of that, all that could stand in the way of experiencing the fullness of God's grace completely and fully. And he assumed all of our pain, all of our shame, all of our sin, and he left it there in the grave. Only to come back to life as the first fruits of the new creation as he triumphed over death himself. He proves the cross was a victory, not a defeat. So again, there is no resurrection without there first being a crucifixion. The Apostle Paul, we've all heard this, this text from, from Romans chapter 8, but I feel it appropriate. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we think about our lives, as we think about our need for help, I would suggest to you that the most accurate motif for our ongoing discipleship to Jesus is one of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death to self so that we can be resurrected to new life in Christ. Remember Jesus' words, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We are in the needing help business, my friends. But the good news is this, God is in the resurrection business. So if there are those of us in this room, if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I am at rock bottom, I would say this to you. Hey, take courage. If you're here this morning and you're swimming hard to avoid hitting a rock bottom, I would say, hey, take courage. Come to Jesus. God is our refuge and strength, our helper who is always found in times of trouble. Let me do my best to summarize the story today. Because God is interruptible, we can come boldly. He has time to help you with whatever your need may be. Because God is personal, we can come vulnerably. No matter how long you've been walking around in a state of uncleanness, he is able to help. Because God is able, we can come hopefully. Because there's nothing beyond the reach of his divine help. And because God is powerful over all, we can surrender fully. Because in Christ, death is not the end. So in response, I want to share two things, and then we'll see what God has for us. So this week, on Friday morning, uh, Jess went out to start our van, and it did not turn over. It made this weird chugging sound. You know when your battery's dying? Is that right, Kevin? Um, But uh, so she goes out to start the thing. She texts me. We come out. We have this little battery charger thing that we've used in the past that works amazingly. So we're like, oh, yeah, we'll just do the same thing we always do. We'll plug this in. Wait five minutes. Boom. Start the car up again. You'll be able to go. And uh, the the truth is that this has been happening for the last little while. The battery has been dying at various points, and we've just been pretending like it's fine. Like, ah, I mean, it started again. It's fine. We'll just keep going. Um, And we've not changed a single thing about how we've lived in the past little bit. We've just pretended like everything's fine. And what we realized in this situation is that our old methods of getting things going, they worked for a time, but not this time. That this little battery charger was no longer able to bring the battery back. And so I feel like that's kind of a picture of where some of us are at in our lives. That, that we have like ways of just hacking life. Like pretending like things are okay. We're ignoring the the we're like, oh, dude, we'll, we'll do the same thing we've always done. It's fine. We'll carry on. We'll get to go to Costco. It's, it's good. Is there money in the bank? We'll, we'll figure it out. And I think what God has for us this morning is he's kind of prepared this space and this time for us to say what we had to say 
hey, the battery's dead. We no longer can resurrect this thing. And so what I had to do is I had to ask for help outside of myself. So I had to call St. Kevin Butler (laughs) and say, dude, she died. But if you lay your hands on a new battery, sorry, that was cheesy, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like I'm ruining the moment. I feel like we cannot keep pretending and hacking our way through life. And so God is saying, hey guys, let's stop pretending. I know the battery is dead, but I can resurrect you. And so I think that there's places in our lives that I know there are places in my life where God has wanted me to be able to finally admit and say, God, this is dead, but, but you can do something about it. And so if you're visual, hopefully that picture helped you. But if you're more literal and wordy, I think it's this, it's my fill in the blank just died, but dot, dot, dot. My fill in the blank just died. That could be whatever. My, my marriage, my relationship with my parents, my financial situation, my uh, self-esteem, my whatever just died. My, my ability to help myself just died, but God come and step in. Yeah. Call Kevin Butler. Um, But what we're going to do is I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm going to actually ask you to take some time on your own to pray into this and say, hey, God, like where am I sputtering and billowing and puttering around my life, pretending like the battery is not dead? And where can I finally just admit this morning that, man, the the key is not turning over and I, I can't get to where I need to go. And God, you need to come and help me. And I'm going to do something bold. I don't like doing this. I hate feeling like I'm, I, I am not trying to manipulate you guys or manipulate a response. But I think there's something significant about the posture Jairus took in this story as he knelt down before Jesus. And so what kneeling does, I think, is it, it, it's with our body, we're signaling, we're, 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 we're signifying humility as we kneel down. We're saying, I don't have control. I can't do this. I'm going to kneel down before you, Jesus, and say, my fill in the blank is dead but can you come and help me? And so if you feel comfortable with that, like this space is here. I think this could be a really beautiful moment of you interacting with God as you kneel down before him and you say these things to him, that he could begin the work of resurrection in your life this very morning. Okay, so no pressure, but that is something that could be open to you to do this morning. As I close, let me say this one thing and then I'll pray for us. We all need help. There isn't a person in this room who isn't in need of the mercy of God. And the longer I do this life with God, the more clear my own desperate need for help becomes. So I want to expose the lie that may be in some of your heads right now. A real Christian wouldn't need help. That is baloney. A real Christian is someone who recognizes their desperate need for help and turns to the only one who can really offer any substantive help, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us and then let's just see what God has for us. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, take, take this time we have together and do something beautiful. Lord, we need help and we thank you that you're the God who can help. And so, uh, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us, um, things in our lives that are dead And will we be able to surrender those things to you, Jesus? And would you come 
and resurrect things. Bring new creation, Lord, into our world, into our lives. Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, in Allison as it is in heaven. Amen.